0: Hello, good morning, Asalaamu and welcome to the Voice of Islam radio. You're joining us on the Saturday morning live show. I'm your host Hamad Khan with co-host Malik Dukkirim, Ahmed. Malik, how are you today? I'm not bad. How are you, Hamad? Good, good, really well. We have a good and interesting show. It, um, you you came up with the idea of this show actually and I I thought it was quite intriguing today we're going to be talking about public health and also charitable efforts particularly humanity first Um, and I, I thought it was quite interesting I had a little synopsis I'm quite dramatic with my intros but I thought about it so here it goes. It was it was this idea that we live in the age of superlatives, right? After the greatest pandemic and the greatest public health crisis of the century, we went into the biggest recession um, on record and we're living in the worst cost-of-living crisis um, for generations. I mean, we've got narratives of resilience soldiering on, making personal cuts, and this implies sort of a personal responsibility to bigger public calamities. And in this climate an overlooked aspect which was great for you to think of is the effects on our health social political economic determinants have worsened public health just in these past two years what are health inequalities how have they worsened and why are they important to tackle this is what we're going to be talking about today i think is a very overlooked under discussed topic Um, and i think it really does put into perspective unfortunately the doom and gloom that we see but also it provides opportunities for us to better society better you know people around us health you know i think the most supreme truth that people have appreciated in the past two years is that our health is one of the most important things of all right so that that that's really what we're going to be discussing but of course first of all we always go to the news round so the green i'm going to go to you first what do you have for us to do
1: absolutely and before that i just um <clears throat> i don't want to take full credit for the public health because it came about as a as as I was deliberating about my career choices and potential career pathways and uh, the educational choices I'd have to make um, to go on the career pathways. And, you know, public health has always been an interest of mine. But as you said, it's so, so pertinent and so poignant to look at, um, you know, the world through the lens of public health. It's become so much more relevant over the past two years that I think, you know, I thought it'd be a really good show uh, topic and a really good uh, thing to talk about for the next two hours or so. But yes, absolutely. So with our news topics, the first one, uh, comes from the entertainment side, but, you know, got a bit of politics in there as well. So, boy George um, tells Matt Hancock that he has been hating on him in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So, the, the singer apparently told Matt Hancock that he found it difficult to separate the politician from the person before he apologised to the MP for his behaviour. Interesting, you know, when I first heard of Matt Hancock going on I'm a Celebrity, my, my first two questions were, what is I'm a Celebrity and why is Matt Hancock going on there?
0: Um
1: <laughs> I confess I haven't watched a single episode yet and I'm not quite sure what it is but it seems to be some kind of entertainment reality show where people are locked up in an area and and um deprived of their luxuries uh, of uh, sleeping in a, a warm comfortable bed I suppose um not not too bad it sounds uh, we do that just every time every year anyway but um it you know, it seems interesting why a politician a paid member of the public um you know someone who's been paid you know out of the uh how our, our taxes is is, is, going, is going to be going on this show um where perhaps you know people argue he should be doing his job as a politician as an MP. Mm. Um but, you know, when I first heard the reason why he was going, you know, to access to increase people's access to politicians, you know, I thought, you know what, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. <laughs> now I don't know the ins and outs of it, but on from a very superficial point of view, it does kind of make sense that to make politicians seem seem more accessible to the people and instead of having a polished pr version of them presents to the public perhaps we might see a bit of more raw uncut kind of character coming through um what do you think about that <laughs>
0: I, I've got thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm i going to try and tame myself when I say this. I think it's the most disgusting, deplorable, mm-hmm. reprehensible thing that an MP in his position with his history mm-hmm. can even think of doing. There, there, there is, I think, um, some... Uh, context to it as well which again doesn't add to any sort of moral reasoning that he tries to drape over it he's got a book that's coming out and I think this is part of the PR the public PR Mm. of course he's got he, he also went on the podcast um Stephen Garrett podcast you might have heard of he Stephen Garrett he, he um, the Diary of the CEO podcast rather oh, okay. um, and even though Matt Hancock isn't a CEO he I guess he was an interesting guest to look at um, in terms of the you know he had a very public affair went against the rules of the lockdown and he was there to clear up his um, name if he if you can do that and I guess this is a continuation of that he's trying to build up a better public image. I think it's absolutely disgusting. You've got a £400,000 you know, income from this show. And in your name, on your hands, there was a medical workforce that was dulled because of your incompetence in not providing PPE. Um, you have COVID uh, in care homes and then you had an increase in mortality of elderly patients who shouldn't have gotten COVID. And just largely, there's wider tweets. I, now, I'm not speaking from a personal capacity because I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm not in the professional medical workforce. But the wider sort of um, issue against it is that he's just got blood on his hands and yet he's just there frolicking about um, in a set in a jungle. You know, he got bit by a scorpion, a scorpion, apparently, or whatever else. But it, it's just it's. It, you really do reduce politics into an undignified and uh, and being a politician into an absolutely undignified thing Mm. i I thought about that the other day i really don't think being a politician is a dignified job i'm I'm sorry this is a personal Mm. position it's just i you've you've got the country in shambles and obviously we will talk about that Mm. in a moment but to have the gall to go onto public tv and Mm. make either a joke out of it or even just ignore it in a sense and just deep go into you know sort of an entertainment activity I I just don't I don't know what his end game is and I think it's really it's awful I think it's a debacle yeah yeah yeah, It's it's yeah it's uh yeah i not much more to say on that so i'm gonna i'm gonna move on to my story, my, if you don't mind swiftly move on yeah sw- swiftly move on i I'll, I'll go into um a bit of a calmer one this is just about um cop twenty seven so when you i don't know about you but i never really heard about cop before until cop twenty six last year and um obviously it's the um international conference um for climate change and action and um delivering policies and i just thought uh, to bring up a news article that um because apparently COP27 came and went. I don't know. But it was just interesting to see after all the fanfare, what are the four main conclusions from it. First of all, they, um, one of the th- uh, things and negotiations that came out is to accept loss and damage. So the big sticking point here is to actually develop a global fund to help countries deal with the immediate impacts of climate change. So you can imagine countries like Pakistan, who at one point had one third of their country underwater. Right? Hopefully I'm not making that up on air. But um, uh, essentially... How can you provide funds that can ameliorate damage to infrastructure, damage to life and health Um, also setting up emergency responses? And we, I guess we'll be talking about that in some aspect in the second half of the show with mm. Humanity First. Um, but it's interesting because it's about, I guess, climate reparations, because countries that are most affected by climate change are lower income countries. For example, you can talk about countries in the Middle East or low lying areas. Yet they're the ones that are least contributing to uh, global CO2 emissions. They did not even have the economy to, you know, um, shoot out those CO2 emissions into atmosphere. Um, so it's an argument that it's only right for us to develop a global fund to help these countries that are disproportionately affected by climate change effects. Second thing, uh, phasing out all fossil fuels. Really interesting and extreme language where richer countries apparently now want to phase out the use of the most polluting fossil fuel, fuel, um, uh, although larger developing countries, including India and China, have not. um, That's unsurprising. India and China have... Um, benefited most vitally from um, fossil fuels there's also i'm reading a book called fossil future where um, the author argues that actually um, it's more significant and appropriate for human flourishing to continue with uh, fossil fuels fossil fuels essentially in his argument is that um, are vital for human flourishing and human development it's a cheap uh, energy um, source and we shouldn't offset it with some of its pollutory effects and rather we should look for ways to have best of both worlds rather than phasing out completely so it's interesting that that narrative never gets um sent into policy third thing is keeping 1.5 degrees alive so this idea of um basically keeping the public narrative of reducing the global rise in um, temperature by 1.5 degrees because that's apparently um i guess lethal um overall for our global health systems and finally the the most important i guess um most insightful thing from the conference was this US and China relationship. Um, So President Biden and uh, President Xi Jinping, um, they had a meeting which considered to be, I guess, a thawing of those uh, relations. Apparently, they've um, gone at it again in some sort of trade route. Apparently, um, America is not accepting trade, particularly from GPUs and um, developing technology from China Sounds really technical, not really Mm. fancy at all. But I I think the larger point is that out of those four conclusions, it's really interesting to see that neither I, neither you, and I don't think much of the larger public really recognize climate change conferences, particularly COP27. And yet, remember, I think we even talked about it in our last show, there was a big fanfare of whether Rishi Sunak should attend this conference, Mm. right? So it's it's just, I guess it adds to the fact whether these are just show many sort of conferences. I I don't know if you have any thoughts on this.
1: That's what I say. um a bit surprising that you 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 kind of forgot about COP twenty seven given that we talked about it last uh week in our show. But again, it was you know, we were talking about whether Roushisou actually go, whether he is you know, demeaning the whole process democratic process of attending COP twenty seven. But like you said, it's come and went. And I don't recall a single seeing a single headline from COP twenty seven this past week. Um, and like I said, those four conclusions, a lot of them seem to be very arbitrary, kind of seem very vague, seem almost kind of abstract in their in their application really. Um so yeah, what is the importance of COP twenty seven? What is the impact of COP 27 Who knows I suppose. Perhaps we might have to look at that in greater detail. Perhaps we haven't done our research in that sense. But from, uh, from from what we know so far it doesn't seem to be much of a much of an impactful event. And perhaps given what's going on in the world right now, perhaps given the the other greater global events that are occurring, Perhaps it's been overshadowed by them. That could be one reason why.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah Did you have another news story for us, The Queen?
1: Yes, having linking to Cop 27 actually. Um, so, apparently, uh, one person was swept into a river, and hundreds of hundreds of others face flooding threat as heavy rain batters Scotland. Climate change again, once again, rearing its ugly head. Um, police in Scotland said that uh, around three o'clock on Friday, you know, somebody was swept into a river in Scotland um perhaps trying to rescue a dog supposedly but the overall story is that much of scotland and north east england have been battered by heavy rain in the past few days and you know in the north east of scotland the council uh told the residents to protect their their properties from flooding even um with some areas experiencing power cuts as well um interestingly enough linking to public health which we won't talk about later is that rest centres have opened up in parts of aberdeenshire after flood warnings escalated to severe um and these you know these persistent rain heavy fall is uh continuing today, and so on and so forth um a month's worth of rain in some parts we've been told is this you know perhaps a more of a practical demonstration of cop twenty seven and its impact or lack of impact um on the climate change and you know um global temperatures rising and so on and so forth and is this perhaps showing us that what what we're doing is not enough, what we're doing is not making a difference um who knows? I suppose you can only. I I always come back to this old uh, this um old saying my dad used to say when I was younger. Um, he might be listening in, so I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. But when I was younger in school, he always used to say to me, "Everyone in school, like I so used to say, like, okay, I'll put in the hard work. As long as you put in the hard work, you know, everything will be all right." My dad used to say, no, "My dad used to say that that's all right, but I'll know if you put in the hard work by your results." Mm. I'll know if you did well. I'll know if you put in the hard work when your results come out. Um and as mean as it sounded, as as a bit as kind of cruel as it sounded at the time, there is, you know, quite a bit of truth into that that COP twenty seven, cop twenty six and so on and so forth, I guess we'll only know if they're working, if the strategies are working, if we see those results. Mm. Um,
0: yeah. no, it's really interesting. I, I I love that quote from your dad. It's it's brilliant, I, I guess um i did to grow up on but just on the cop and the narrative even about you know any sort of freak weather events that we see and you know sometimes we lurch immediately to okay this is climate change this is immediately climate change i i i had a climate change and health module during my masters it was one of the best i wasn't planning on taking it but it happened to be one of the best modules i've taken So far in my higher education, um, purely because it dealt with scientific uh, knowledge, dissemination and how things can be mistranslated. Right now, there is no evidence to suggest that there is an increase in frequency for um, harsh weather patterns, including wildfires and including tornadoes. You don't hear that. Right, and we're very quick to say, for example, whether you know a river has bursted its banks or it's climate change. For example, I remember sitting down um, next to um, a woman at an award ceremony. This was for like sustainability and healthcare, and she was she she did some stuff in sustainability and healthcare, and she said in her hospital, the um one department had entirely flooded and they went to write to The Guardian to say, look, you need to publish this. This is, you know, the effects of climate change. We can't do our operations. This is, you know, clearly um a perfect example of how climate change can harm people's health, right? And she, without a hint of irony, she also said it, it was later found out that there was plumbing issues and that could have um, contributed to it. But that's not the point. She's like, it's climate change and it's this. I was like... How can you be so, you know, I I feel like the the idea of climate change really does um, evoke a lot of strong emotions and people perhaps um, are quick to lose um, wider senses of things that's not to say that the urgent action is needed, um, that fair action is needed, that climate justice needs to be established too as well um, and so yeah we definitely uh, do need to do all of that. I'm going to quickly move on to my next news story because I think it's just um, really interesting to talk about um, it's this whole idea about sports washing and um, Qatar hosting the uh, uh, World Cup. Uh, Gary Lineker said he won't be getting any Qatari money but obviously he's still attending um, in his uh, capacity as a host. Joe July set was a comedian who's famously publicly challenged David Beckham to say to uh, stop his attendance t- to Qatar and getting any sort of endorsement deals there otherwise he'll publicly shred 10,000 pounds of money which a in itself is illegal and there is conversation about whether he can pin res- responsibility onto another person when he's the one committing the actions particularly in this climate of mm. cost of living how can he be shredding that much amount of money mm. for just a statement and then finally Piers Morgan as well. He he quite. It's very weird when you start to agree with Piers Morgan. But he very uh, quietly said that you know this whole debate is uh, laced with rank hypocrisy. Eight countries of the last 32, so the quarter uh, quarter quarterfinal countries in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, they outlaw uh, homosexuality or they have other uh, rules that are um, endemic to their country and cultural practices. Yet we don't see any sort of advancements and protests on them either. Of course, there was now this issue about Qatar banning completely any sort of selling and drinking of alcohol as well, which has erupted Mm. into outrage. And just to end on it, someone did someone tweeted and I thought it was quite pertinent. He said maybe a massive international celebratory event, celebratory social event, not being entirely centred around alcohol for once isn't such a bad thing. Right. Mm. Uh, That just really brings it. How global can something be when you're espousing some particular values onto a country that doesn't really practice them? Wonder Mm. if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, again, it's a very interesting issue: homosexuality and you know not drinking being you know central to the issues of Qatar hosting the event due to being an Islamic country. Um, another key issue actually is about you know along with that, um, I think you explained really well the issues regarding them. But I just wanted to to focus a little bit more about the the issues of migrant workers and the living conditions of those migrant workers. I think that's another interesting aspect. Yeah, because if we're talking about um, you know, building stadiums for the Qatar World Cup. Mm. And if we're th talking about, you know, things that are endemic to that country, then I suppose one of the key humanitarian issues in that country is, is, you know, like this crisis of, um, Qatar, uh, you know, Qatar paying, uh, people from abroad, you know, Im- almost importing them en masse and paying them very little wages and horrible living conditions and. Mm. You know the deaths and so on and so forth that are, that are happening in in building those kind of stadiums. Perhaps you know we should spend our time and effort focusing on those issues rather than issues of, you know, more more moral issues because I feel this is a little bit more substantial.
0: And people did bring that up and then it's just, someone else I thought was quite um, succinct in saying, why are people so vocally against the World Cup being held in Qatar but don't say a word against our government doing trade deals and sending arms to the Gulf states? So is any country really morally clean enough for you to not point fingers if they're, you know, hosting a World Cup game? I don't think so. You know, if you come here we, we do this moral posturing and we think that, you know, certain countries, particularly Within Western nations, are are, are a bit more um, adapted to, to holding such um, global um, and um, international events because we're morally clean. Mm. No, we just do it behind closed doors, and much of the public aren't aware of mm. much of the issues that face us. Uh, but that's that. I just want to m- move on. I think the Queen, you had a f- final um, news story. Oh no, you didn't. I <laughs> that that was on me. So yeah, that that's that, that's essentially the news story that we're covering. Um, you know, I I think it's always interesting to go over the news before so that we can just um, s- sort of see what the, uh, what the context is in the week. And um, it's really interesting because there was another news story that I was going to go into, but I think it ties much into the um, show overall. That I'm going to save it there, and then sure. you might have heard of it. It was about a two-year-old child who um, died, particularly because of the mold um, in his household. Um, that is a perfect example of public health and how it's affecting our health and the deterrence of health. Mm. And that's really what our show is going to be about today right so in these past two years we've seen loss of life because of covid obviously you know increasing mortality rates but with that we've seen loss in income you've had social distancing and lockdown you've seen loss of jobs the highest unemployment ever on record i still remember you know i think billions of pounds lost just in um, the u.s and the greatest um, unemployment line that that was observed and then you've got an increase in food banks you've got i, I think people even forget that unicef was cu- sending in food parcels here to to England mm. um, and to, wider, to a wider UK as well. Mm. So, and and we're very quick to just gloss over, and I guess it's because, you know, it's a personal dark time for most of us who don't really want to remember it. But it's not been a great sort of period. And the fact that overall public health has worsened and life expectancy for the first time on average has actually decreased by one or two years. Um, it's, it's just... Um, I think I think really stark. I, I was wondering whether you have just any reflections, particularly um, the green on public health, or whether whether you've seen much of it. Or do, do you have any sort of personal, I guess, you know, reflections on how it's been in the past two years? And then we can move on and talk mm-hmm. about the show. overall. Yeah. So like I said
1: earlier on, you know, I've always had like a lifelong interest in public health. For me, public health is the issue of. You know, I went into medicine to help people. I still remember writing my personal statement that serving humanity is is, is, is my my mission, uh, you know, as an Ahmadi, as a vokfino a member of the Vukfino scheme of the of the Muslim community, serving humanity is what I'm focusing on. And by medicine and healthcare, you know, I can see patients and, you know, make a big difference to their lives. But public health for me, I always say this I explained to my father, is that so I can do ten surgeries a day, five surgeries a day, I can see ten, twenty patients a day, right? Let's say but with public health i can have the potential to affect the lives of 10 20 30,000 people a day and the policy making and the public health policy making and the initiatives that you can uh, you can start you know the projects that you can do they have the potential to make you know a significant impact to the lives of many many people i'm just going to relate really, one one story here um which for me kind of cemented the importance of public health in my mind so, I had the opportunity to go to Pakistan mm. uh, last year. Well, they say actually 2022, um, and complete uh, an, an internship for a week or so mm. in uh, the hospital there in Rabwa, in Pakistan. And I saw a patient there, I'd um, say three, four months old, baby, I think it was. Could be wrong, could be younger. And she came in with severe liver failure, jaundice, uh, classic presentation of liver failure. So we were thinking, you know, hepatitis, what, what could it be? You know, uh, infection through bloodstream, what, what the doctors couldn't really work out what was going on, you know, her ALP, her, her blood test results were through the roof. And uh, the mother, if I recall correctly, um, please don't quote me on this, but the mother presented, you know, a kind of a, a packet of, of medication and the doctors and the doctors saw and it was a vitamin D, um, supplement. And the doctors were kind of passing it around, you know, they couldn't really work out what it was. In the end, it turns out it was a vitamin D supplement uh, of 30,000 units, which I think may, I don't even know how it was legal in the country. Um, I don't know how she got hold of it. But it turns out she'd been giving it to her once a week or once a day or something like that, um, regularly to her child over the past few months. And essentially had been slowly, slowly, inadvertently killing her daughter by giving such a ridiculously large dose of vitamin D uh, tablet yeah. of oh, vitamin D um, you know to her daughter and mm. 10,000 units per day is a safe upper limit for adults so giving 30,000 to a mere child is, is, is absolutely atrocious mm. but for me I mean uh, looking at through a public health lens you know I saw I saw the lack of health education in the mother itself I saw the public health legalization in which you know would have stopped or prevented the sale of such a high dose you know, I saw the kind of, uh, the way that nobody had kind of tracked the way that she'd come into hospital and no one kind of picked up on this issue until one or two days later into her uh, stay at the hospital. Mm. Um, maybe through a lack of clear history-taking, who knows. So these all kind of issues, that I looked at them through a public health lens, and for me that kind of really cemented the practical and real impact of, of public health. I remember when I was going into medicine, I once mentioned the idea of public health to a very senior doctor. And, you know, I wasn't really laughed at, but I kind of, I was kind of told that public health is for kind of the dumb doctors, for those who can't really do medicine, who don't really, not interested in medicine, they want an easy way out, really. Mm-hmm. They just want to be politicians more than one of the doctors. But for me, this really showed a real significant impact public health can make to a patient's life.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with I I I'm sort of like like a inverse inflection point uh, of the cream in sort of our careers. So I, I've I've done my masters in public health, and now I'm, I'm do, do, doing graduate medicine. My
1: peer, of course, but my mentor. <laughs>
0: no, that, that that's too kind. But really, essentially, I had the similar thought when I was you know running around in London one day, and I was like, do, do I really want to do graduate medicine when I can easily affect um, wider change in, in in public health? And I realized, and I had a similar thought to you, and it's about not just the patients that I'll see in my clinic. Um, it's about getting the skills so that I can affect um, my invisible patients, the patients who won't have the privilege to come to your clinic, the patients who are dispossessed, disenfranchised by whatever wider factors. Maybe it's as simple as a language barrier. Maybe it's health education. Maybe it's wider in, in inequality and access to healthcare. What can you do that can affect wider positive societal change that can actually affect their lives, and yet you don't know them? You won't know their names, but they're still your patients. They're your invisible patients, and that's really what it is.
1: And that brings us on topic of this show is not just about public health and you know exploring public health. It's about health inequality, uh, exactly. Mm. And like you said, it's those patients that don't come to hospital who don't have the privilege of being able to come to hospital. It's those patients that die at home with no one to look after them. It's those patients that you really want to affect. Those are the patients where you have the highest impact. Um, one thing that I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week as well, I'm going to bring up again, it's the fact that. Once again, a study that showed that if you're born in Tower Hamlets, you your life expectancy is 82 years old, or 80 or 82 years old. If you're born in Chelsea, in Kensington, that area, your life expectancy is 87 years old. Mm. So why is there that, that discrepancy of five to seven years? Why are five to seven years being taken off, being taken off a person's life simply because they live 10 miles apart? Mm. And that, for me, really, again, summarises public health and the impact of public health.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if you've heard of... Um, is it, is, it, is it, uh, yeah so I'm not sure if you've heard of um, we'll, ha- we'll have a guest um, c- calling on today to talking more about health inequality um, overall but it's a really interesting that you talked about um, you know th- th- there's a study talking about he- uh, health inequality life expectancy is across the tube there's a social gradient of health so if you go outwards of London your life expectancy decreases by a year from every stop that you take uh, and that really is um, a, a stark example and display of um, inequality in, um, in health overall and actually we've got a brilliant guest caller on today um, who uh, will I guess enlighten us more in this conversation we have Sander Ismail a senior lecturer in public health um, at University of West England and Bristol, uh, Bristol sorry um, he's done much work um, his master's degree in public health his distinction and PhD um, and looking particularly about health inequalities overall um, particularly in the dementia population um, but Sander, um it's really a pleasure to have you on thank you so much for coming on voice for Islam today
2: Jazakallah. Um, thank you
0: for having me. And as-salamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa So, Sansab, we're just moving on and talking just about health inequalities, um, particularly within the climate of the worst cost-of-living um, standard of living crisis that we're seeing as well. From your experience and from your expertise and just for the listeners of, of the show, um, to introduce them to this topic, what are health inequalities? Are there any examples and why is it important to be talking about this and recognizing um, health inequalities?
2: Um right, exactly. That's that's a good question. Um to define health inequalities um in very simple terms. When we when we talk about health inequalities, we are actually referring to the unfair distribution, okay, of health and various health conditions, mm. including the factors that cause these health conditions across different populations. Okay. So um this is, this is really uh, you know, important, and if you look at that unfair distribution, we're not only talking about the differences in the distribution of those health conditions um, you know, and you know, um, factors that causes those health conditions, but we're also looking at how people who probably do not need certain resources to improve their health actually tend to get that more compared to those who actually need those resources to improve their health conditions. Mm. So in kind of like simple um, terms, this is what we mean by health inequalities.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, thank you so much for that. I, I just want to also say uh, then why is it important, I guess, um, is someone might ask to recognise health inequalities mm. and act to reduce them?
2: Absolutely. So... Um, you know, it's first of all, it's a very prevalent, um, you know, problem when it comes to public health at every level that you look at it. We've um, already talked about some of them, actually. So, you know, whether it be it at the global level, uh, be it at the very micro level, we have this actually, uh, you know, existing uh, within our societies and you started talking about uh, your life expectancy, so I'll start from there to just highlight the importance of it. Mm-hmm. If we look at life expectancy globally, and life expectancy, what we mean by that is, you know, is, um, let's say at birth, how long we expect a child to be able to live you know, long for, you know, taking into consideration all the current conditions that we have or we are facing. So a child who is born in Japan today we actually expect that child to live up to the age of 84 years on average, okay? But if you look at a similar child born in a place such as Lesotho, which is in the southern part of Africa, we only expect that child to live only up to 51 years old on average. So you can see this wide gap of 25 years difference, okay, in how long, you know, a child is to live for if you were born in Lesotho compared to a child who was to be born um, in Japan mm. okay and that presents a very big you know big problem over here you know what, what is it about this child born in this area that's actually driving or making this um, child's life expectancy shorter okay And now, um, that is at a global level. It's very interesting that you've already highlighted an example, you know, at a kind of like, you know, micro level as well, Um, looking at, uh, you know, England, and even looking at a city such as London, and it's very similar if you go to places such as Greater Manchester. If you're traveling on the tram from Manchester Airport, you know, uh, way down to the city centre, to Rochdale town centre, life expectancy sort of varies depending on the level of deprivation or poverty Um, you know, across particular um, 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 towns, okay. Um, Looking at the resources that we have in the world here, I think it is now very obvious that we've got very limited resources when it comes to promoting the health of populations. Mm. And therefore, it is very important for us to be able to identify those who actually need these resources the most. That is the only way we can bridge that gap in inequality when it comes to health and Mm. access to health, uh, for example. We've seen recent examples in the COVID-19 pandemic where we've actually seen that those countries that have been greatest hit with the burden in terms of mortality of COVID-19, and these are usually the low and middle income countries who actually need these vaccines, okay, um, actually are those who have less access um, to these vaccines. So the only way we can you know, enable that fair distribution, okay, of those health resources if we start to understand, you know, um, those health inequalities, and therefore, you know, channel those resources to those who need it um, the most.
1: Absolutely, um, you know, that's quite a comprehensive overview. I think our readers really would have understood much from that just um in regards to the current cost of living crisis you know we've heard quite a few uh, quite a lot recently in the media about the issues regarding fuel poverty and the effects that's have, that's having you know how so many more people are turning to food banks uh, for support um people you know that have you know that two income uh, you know two sources of income in the family but they're still having to you know turn to food banks because they're struggling to pay their rent pay the increased bills and so on and so forth so how do these kind of how is this current cost of living crisis really how is that affecting health inequalities?
2: Um, sure so to start off with in public health when we are thinking about the factors that affect the health of people we look beyond those individual related factors that affect the health of people okay so we are looking beyond things such as the lifestyles of people uh, we are looking beyond things such as you know, um, the biomedical factors that affect people, Um, but looking more broadly at all those social, ecological, and economic factors that affect the health of population, and, you know, be it uh, being occupation uh, or employment, um, be it the natural environment um, or the built environment. I heard you talking earlier on about climate change. Okay. We're looking at all these factors that impact on the health of people, you know, including obviously income, okay, which is related to um, you know employment and occupation. So currently, if you look at you know the full crisis, you know, some um, groups of people, um, you know, struggling to be able to afford the energy bills, and we are in the winter now, in the winter months, okay. Um, those living conditions, okay. Have an impact on the health of people, and when it comes to health inequalities, unfortunately, um, those whose health or are actually facing the greater burden of health are those who actually do not have, uh, you know, are disproportionately affected when it comes to things such as poor poverty. What this does is that it just increases, you know, um, the 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 burden on 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 health conditions that can develop as a result. I heard you earlier on talking about a child who died you know, in, in England in a house as a result of mold um, being, you know, being in the house, for, for instance. So while these conditions are affecting the living conditions of these people, it is contributing to the already existing high burden of health conditions that some groups of people you know, are facing um, at the moment. So yes, all those um, you know, changes in those wider determinants, including for poverty, Maybe have a direct impact on the um, health inequalities of the populations in our society.
0: All right, thank you so much, uh, Sunday Smith. I think that that really does um, c- clarify, you know, the context because we do hear about, you know the how unequal the impact of covid-19 and its indirect impacts and we're not just talking about mortality you can argue that everything that we've experienced in these past 2-3 years has precipitated from um the covid-19 pandemic how how is it really impacting our health i, I think that was a really good cursory um overview at th- the green you might did you want to have something to add
1: yeah absolutely and you know before you ask a final question as well i was I was thinking about this you know we've highlighted the 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 vast you know majority of health inequalities and the risk increase in them are there any kind of ideas that you might have Sandra uh, Saab, about you know how can we go about addressing this now this is something that we're going to cover in the later half of our show as well especially but overall you know what are the key kind of themes or kind of key principles which we should base um our kind of activities on addressing those health inequalities and what kind of key ideas should be start um, by building our, you know, foundation for addressing those those uh, inequalities.
2: Um, very good question, uh, Malik. So, um, as I said, I mean, in in health inequalities has been a very long um problem across the globe. And just to take the case of um, England, uh, for example, I mean, um, England has been struggling to bridge the health inequality gap for the past thirty years, and have still not been able to successfully do that. So there was, um, you know, um, a publication known as the Mammoth Review, for example, which in 2010 um, looked at the differences in health of populations across England and Wales, and realised that, you know, there were these stark inequalities, you know, just usually based on people's social identities, for example, based on their ethnicity or age or gender or where they actually lived, based on their deprivation. And 10 years down the line. Um, in 2020, you know, that, that, that was um, reviewed and I actually realized that that inequality gap has still been widening. It's not, it's not closed in a lot of areas and the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't you know, helped it either, has actually widened um, you know, that, that gap. So in the past, the way we've been approaching it, we've been approaching it the wrong way, so we've been focusing on trying to improve um, individual level factors to help break those health inequalities. And so, as I said, looking at things such as, you know, the lifestyles of people, for example, things including diet or the way people go about accessing health resources or taking care of themselves. What that did is that it shifted the blame to individuals in the population. So where individuals were sort of responsible for their own health, you know, for example, if you um, have diabetes, it's because you are taking too much sugar. Okay, into your system. So that is your fault. You shouldn't have been doing that. And therefore, we were always focusing on how the individual can change their behavior, how the individual can change their lifestyle factors. So it was very victim blaming. And this is one of the reasons why we've still not been able to solve this problem. Currently, there are, you know, you know, of course, several new approaches that we are looking at, but kind of like two two important ones here are looking at those structural determinants of health, okay, and also looking at what we call intersectionality um, factors that influence health inequalities. And I'm going to break this down a little bit further. What we mean by those structural determinants of health is we need to be looking at those wider factors that shape people's you know, um, vulnerability okay, to those health conditions. What I mean by that, uh, you know, structural means looking at things such as policies, for example, looking at things such as them changing the wider environment. Okay, so for example, my the example of diabetes: we shouldn't be blaming people that you are having diabetes because you are eating too much sugar. But first of all, should we be looking at you know, regulations in terms of you know the level of sugary products that we actually enable onto the market? Um, you know, for example, things such as the sugar tax. Um, in England, for example, should we be looking at sales like that? That can actually help reduce the access to those kind of unwholesome um, products. When, you know, we're talking about lesser people in our population, you know, uh, becoming obese because they are not engaged in regular physical activities. So rather than, you know, looking at it at an individual level, behavior, the, blaming the behavior of people, should we be thinking about, you know, to what extent do we make um, communities, okay, who don't have access to green spaces and parks and safe environments for them to exercise? Should we be thinking about changing those, those environments to enable those active um, behaviours to take care of those health conditions? And you can see that what this does actually is that it shifts the responsibility from the individual onto the policymaker, okay, onto the politicians, okay. And this is now one of the angles that we think can help you know, reduce the inequalities in society. So give more access, you know, in terms of those structural determinants to people who need it, including mm. things like access to healthcare, including things like access to good medicines. Mm. Now the other aspect that I mentioned about the intersectionality um, focus of it is for a very long time when we talk about inequalities, we always look at the differences in those health conditions between people of different social identities, be it ethnicity, um, be it religion, be it age, be it gender, but the reality is that there is no single person with one social identity. Okay, so if you take any individual at all, so you are either, you know, a black man who is a Muslim, who is a with a particular in, within a particular age category and living in a particular area. So you've got all these social identities intersecting, and these will help explain the accumulation of any disadvantage or advantage okay, to help that you may have and once we do understand that that gives us the opportunity and you know and and define help us define ways that we can tackle any burden that those populations are facing as a result of the intersectionality of those social
0: identities mm. I, I'm so glad you actually talked about, um, wider structural determinants of health, um, j- j- just initially, um, beca- because what we're seeing now is a collapsing of care around the individual. Even now, I, I was sitting in a, a GP, uh, clinic, and just the, the directional conversation is usually, um, the GP saying, okay, for the patient, you need to do this, you need to be doing this, you should be taking more steps, mm. you should be doing this. And it's really, well, actually, I think p- particularly the clinical workforce, but also everyone else who's in a position of, um, he, you know, addressing, you know, patients' health should recognise wh- wh- what are the contexts, environmental context, and the political context that are determining people's mm-hmm. health. Um, I, I think it's completely um, entirely overlooked. Um, to what degree can you tell someone to eat more healthily when they don't have the economic means? Um, or to what degree can you tell someone to do more exercise when they're living in a council estate and there's no green spaces that can encourage them mm-hmm. um, to go out? Or to what degree can you blame them for having a lung condition if they're living in a polluted area at the green you have something as well, and
1: absolutely. And you know, there's been a lot of focus recently on social prescribing, like you said, encouraging individuals to you know go ha- exercise for an hour a day, for example. Some people, you know, their lifestyle is not is not structured for them to allow them to do that, or the environment is not structured for them to allow to do that, and they don't have the resources and the, you know the 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 freedom to do that. So really. Like I said, we need to be focusing less on the individual and more on the policies and the kind of the projects that we can put in place to ensure that, you know, we don't have to make people you know feel guilty for you know their weight or their illnesses because you know at the very heart of it that's just going to make things worse really
0: mm-hmm. oh you open the social prescribing can mm-hmm. that's a that's a whole other conversation but sanders <laughs> just, just before you, you leave I, I also wanted to spotlight your inc- incredible research that you're um you're involved in um, particularly in inequalities in developing de- dementia before covid dementia was considered the biggest disease of the century and i think it will actually hold that title once Hopefully, God willing, we remove ourselves from the effects of this pandemic, because unfortunately, the burden of dementia, with the projected um, increase in age related burdens and increase in life expectancy, it's only going to increase. Um, I, I think your research that you're dedicating to inequalities in uh, developing dementia is quite interesting. So I just wanted to spotlight that and ask you, what can you currently tell us um, about health inequalities linked in with um, getting dementia?
2: Um Yes, and um, I like the way you put it, That dementia has lost its spot as the leading cause of mortality um, in England and Wales. Definitely as a researcher, uh, um, I'll be glad if we lose it for good reasons, I'm losing it because we are tackling it and we are solving those factors that are resulting in it. Um, But even then, even as of April this year, April 2022, it was still the leading cause of mortality um, in England and Wales. Currently, it's the second leading cause of mortality after COVID nineteen. But actually, twenty five percent of all mortality cases um, in England and Wales are caused by either de- dementia or those factors that are strongly associated with dementia. So it's still, um, you know, uh, an, an, an you know an evil beast, if you like, um, when it comes to you know health across the um, population, and. Um, I am looking at, um, in my research, um, which um, I'm currently um, doing as an NIHR uh, fellowship with um, Liverpool University, is looking at how we can reduce those factors that cause dementia among black ethnic Muslim minority um, populations. So, um, you know, currently we do have a good idea of those factors that lead to dementia um, across the general population but what we do also know, th- know is that some groups of populations are most affected okay by dementia compared to others for example um you know black males in the uk are three times more likely um to be diagnosed with dementia compared to their counterparts and um, white population mm. and When we also look at the Muslim population in the UK, um, for instance, we do know that the Muslim population, which is very under-researched, I must admit, in the first instance, um, that they experience a whole lot of, um, you know, issues that strongly, um, theoretically, um, makes them at greater risk of dementia. Although we don't know the extent to which that is, you know, so things such as low education, uh, physical inactivity. deprivation and discrimination, for example, all things that the Muslim communities in the UK are very much widely exposed to. But as I said in my previous conversation, that when we are looking at these disproportionate or unfair distribution of burden of health conditions across various social identities, we need to think about how these social identities intersect as well. So from my research, I'm looking at it from the perspective that, okay, if the burden of dementia is higher among black males okay, in the UK or black people in the UK compared to other ethnic groups, and if it looks like it may, in terms of the exposure variables, be higher among the Muslim communities, then why don't we look at the intersectionality of these two groups? Why then, rather than looking at reducing dementia among black people, separately and among Muslims separately, why don't we look at, oh, how to actually understand those factors that cause dementia among black Muslim communities mm. in the UK? This will give us a better understanding, okay, of the burden, okay, of, 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 of dementia among these particular groups and will help us to start, you know, finding ways to reduce that burden. So I am going to be ana- analysing some longitudinal studies to see those factors that cause dementia among black Muslim communities in England. And after identifying those factors, I'll then be discussing it with um, various black Muslim groups in England to find out you know, what they think are the social, um, cultural drivers of these risk factors. You know, For example, one of the key risk factors for dementia. Is, is, is hearing loss, um, for example. So, what, what are to them, what are some of the factors that are driving this? And once we know those factors, then we can think about how to tackle those factors to prevent it. And in mm. tackling those factors, I'm going to be looking at it from the wider structural um, perspective um, beyond the individual perspective. So. How can we use those institutions in our society to help prevent those factors, So institutions such as the healthcare institutions, the local authorities, the religious organizations in our communities, the voluntary um, community sectors and social enterprises within our communities? How can we use those as vehicles and as ways of tackling those um, risk factors um, of dementia among this population?
0: that sounds incredibly exciting in terms of I think the the, the outreach of that work is is going to be quite um, far and um, it's incredibly uh, seminal work and something like you said that's so overlooked Uh, I think that's you know all that's left for us to say really is just wishing you the very best um, in that and um, thank you so much for giving your time and your expertise and your knowledge um, on, on Saturday morning live today it was a pleasure having you on thank you so much
2: JazakAllah for JazakAllah
0: Right So That was interesting to green So there's quite a lot there What do you think?
1: You I mean that was I felt like I was You know That was an education Itself for me <laughs> um, With my My natural interests uh, Withstanding I think the way You know You uh, know uh, so, this I uh, broke down the key the key parts of public health into kind of very easy to understand. Something like public health is at danger of, or public health uh, people are at danger of kind of over complicating simple ideas, and you know struggling to convey simple aspects. Way um, till
0: you get to your statistics module. It's a disaster. <laughs> I'm
1: not looking forward to that one, but. You know, you know, it's such a such a great job, um, Senator did, of just breaking it down to simple issues, such as, you know, what are health inequalities, how do we identify them, how do we identify the people involved with them, how do we address those, you know? And I love this point about, you know, moving from individual factors to more structural determinants of health. Mm. You know, we're moving more from social determinants to structural determinants mm. in the sense that, that, like you said, the onus is on the policymaker rather than individual now. Mm. We shouldn't be almost shaming people, you know, for their lifestyle choices mm. because, you know, even that word itself, lifestyle choice, implies that there is a choice, um, you know, for somebody who, you know, for somebody to become a diabetic, for example, or to overeat and so on and so forth. Mm. Whereas actually, we don't know their life and we don't know the, what they've been through, for example, you know, certain traumas certain environmental factors. And, you know, so they might not have access to the resources that we have, for example. And even again, that word lifestyle choice is, is, is misleading in that sense. And so really it's about addressing those key, key issues and you know kind of looking at it you know from more from a societal structural point of view like is it mm.
0: I, I mean i've had much conversation about wider systemic change policy change and you, you know also ch- changing clinical practice so that we're not blaming the individual we're looking more holistically mm-hmm. at the wider deterrence that the patients face and th- one of the key issues I, I i talked to an author um about this who talks about um how we can change clinical practice for the better and he said that you know it actually has to start with the patients because sometimes the patients come in clinic and they seek for a medical cure when really what they need is uh, an investigation in their wider determinants and lifestyle factors um, that can help them for example rather than me giving you an SSRI for depression really what, what, what is it that's causing you depression is it financial stress and worry is it um, you know whatever contextual factors that you're experiencing similarly more medically you can t- talk about diabetes is it that you don't have access to certain nutritional fu- food it's so much cheaper to get frozen food from wherever else now than it is to actually get fresh organic um, produce. Um, one thing that I wanted to pick out from um, S- 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 um incredible um, conversation was the idea of health promotion. And I want to pick your brains on this as well as a medical student because I think it's important and also for listeners as patients. Unfortunately, we're perishable. We will always be in a patient position as well. It's interesting to, I think, talk about health promotion. As a medical student, you've done quite a lot of lectures you're now in your third year right yeah yeah so that's like thousands and thousands of hours of lectures um and uh, you know uh, personal uh, studying in the library as well mm-hmm. you can probably tell me you know perhaps not from the memory but about the pathogenesis and the pathophysiology of cancers right how does Mm -hmm. cancer come about how does Mm -hmm. it grow right Mm -hmm. even dementia for example Mm -hmm. we know that there's certain proteins that grow in the uh, brain they become Mm plaque-like they would you know they lower the activities of our neurons Mm -hmm. our cells in the brain Mm -hmm. you can tell me much about perhaps even kidney failure right Mm -hmm. or whatever else there is can you tell me the pathways to good health
1: it's an interesting question. Come back to me later, please, after my masters. There, well,
0: there, there you go. therein lies the problem. Mm. There is no education in understanding how health is created. You know, I, I, rem- I've, I've written a document, and we're hopefully going to be starting this campaign. And I sent it to a medical student for their um, uh, perspective, and and she came back and she replied, "Oh, there's a grammatical mistake. You, you've said health creation. Do you not mean health promotion?" I don't know, it's health creation. I was talking to this author, another author, who came up with this idea that hospitals are for repairs, health is made at home and in the communities. Mm -hmm. And this idea of health can be created and not just promoted. As much as disease can be created and disease can be promoted, health also can be created. How can we create health? And as medical practitioners and as future doctors, there is no knowledge that we can pass on to our patients besides just giving pills and procedures and medicalizing everything. And it's a real issue because there are health inequalities. And without understanding how health can be created, how can we truly step forward and, you know, advocate for proper change? That's really what it is for me. Um, and I think that's a really good point. But perhaps
1: one issue is that, you know, and I don't want to be too pessimistic, is that. I think that perhaps needs to be changing the mindset, like you said, of a lot of doctors and medical students. Like I said, not approaching medicine from a biochemistry and purely scientific point of view, but approaching it from a more holistic point of view. And by holistic, we mean looking at the social determinants of health, structural determinants of health, and, you know, kind of societal uh, issues like we talked about. There is a lot of the mindset, like I said, of doctors. Like when I first into medicine, I told you, you know, public health is kind of looked down upon. And it's you know, kind of seen as an abstract acad- academic idea. And... You know, so even now there's some doctors that will say, well, public health is all well and good, but when a patient comes to us with symptoms of depression, if we go and try to tell them about, you know, perhaps we should have more green spaces in the community, they can look at us and think, okay, but doctor, what does that do for me? Mm. And so it still brings us back to that uh, issue of acutely, uh, again, that issue of medicine being an acute, almost kind of uh, treatment thing. And I, I know people hate the word acute, but for me, uh, acute and chronic, and like I said, the idea of repairs uh, rather than long-term sustainable things, it's the idea that you come in for a condition or a disease an illness you come in you're treated you leave something else arises you come back in you get treated you leave and not kind of focusing on giving that education so that like you said health can be created at home i think that's so important but i think that requires a radical shift in the mindset mm. of of medical professionals across the board not just doctors you know nurses dentists uh, and any kind of healthcare practitioners really and how do you go about doing that when we have issues such as you know underfunding the nhs and national staff shortage and so on and so forth people will say you know public health is all well and good and having more gr- green spaces and kind of the kitchen is so important but right now we have three doctors covering the entire A&E what do we do about that? Mm. So again it's about convincing people that you know, you know perhaps priorities need to be changed perhaps you know we need to doing something more about this and kind of convincing people that you know this really is a priority, this is an investment in the future.
0: You've opened a lot of questions on there and I'm just cautious time we're going to go on to the news but I think we're going to have to go back on this about the idea of health promotion about the idea of how can we create um, a better medical workforce, how can we provide care for our patients that's more holistic and long term and better their conditions of living um, more than just giving them pills um, Alright so just after the break we'll be carrying on more with this and continuing on with our show talking about public health and charitable outcomes that can better people's lives. Hello, good morning, and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam Radio. I'm your host, Hamad Khan, with my co-host, uh, Malik Dagrim Ahmed. And for the best part of the past 30 minutes to 40 minutes, we've been talking about public health inequality, health inequalities particularly, and how we can go about what 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 is it, how can we identify them, and how can we best reduce their effects so that we can create a more healthy environment that's equitable for everyone uh, to be in and I just wanted to also I think really contextualise particularly um, health inequalities from COVID as well I I just we didn't uh, go over this in particular and because well one of the things is that life expectancy has been decreasing for the past 11 years and for the first time it's de- decreased Um, in one year by um, at least one and a half years for um, males in particular which is absolutely extraordinary considering that you've got a wider narrative of us living in a better age with better medicines and better technologies why are we actually seeing worse health outcomes for our um, patients and the public overall particularly within covid you know i've talked about ethnic minority communities covid is twice as high in black communities than white communities in the uk and some 40 percent of employed women um, globally, were working in sectors that were hardest hit during the pandemic. And so, th- those with the lowest jobs, security, and income were least likely to be able to work from home during the COVID 19 pandemic. And therefore, you had the greatest number of infection from those in the lowest socioeconomic status. So, really, what we're seeing is that disease doesn't infect people uh, on an equal basis. You can actually, you will unfortunately have worse health outcomes if you are worse off in life. You kn- we know that it's also ec- uh, educationally determined as well. Higher education it involves getting a better paying job it involves getting better security and therefore you get worse health um better health outcomes than than others how can we recognize these issues and how can we work towards reducing them in our environment the cream did you have some reflections from our previous conversation
1: yeah absolutely you know there was a lot you know there was a lot that we talked about and you know there was a lot I think to take in for viewers as well and as you said you know there's certain good standards so have made some excellent, excellent points you know like I said an education for myself as well one thing again you know, like you said is that you know we see that health and quality is disproportionately disproportionately affecting those that are worse off in life and that is one of the sad realities is that areas which have low incomes going to have lower health inequalities they may even have lower standards of healthcare just because there's not enough resources due to low attacks and so on and so forth it's almost like a cycle um where you just see you know a self-deprecating cycle of kind of more and more inequality and deepening inequality in that area and you know it requires kind of a very very large you know Initiative from the government to identify those areas and mm-hmm. put in those projects in place, which again are not temporary projects and not temporary solutions but long term solutions to uplift the whole community yeah. and address those sort of structural determinants of health. But again, for the viewers, you know, I think my key takeaway for, for them for, to perhaps for, from today is you know, to hopefully this has been a very brief introduction to public health. But I'd love for people to just go away and kind of research on their own and kind of work out what public health and specifically what does public health mean to you you know there's a lot of great nhs initiatives online such as the nhs couch to 5k run program for example you know that's a very simple um project you know, a very simple project by the nhs where you can literally go from sitting on your couch to running 5k in the process of a few weeks and you know public health initiatives like this are so freely available online for free as an app in such good formats people are just unaware of these being in place you know diet plans so on and so forth you don't need to hire a personal trainer you don't need to hire someone a nutritionist you can go online and act all these front free online resources these public health resources and you know make the most of them so really i just encourage people to you know just find out more about the subject and find out how they can you know introduce public health and uh, you know use public health initiatives in their own lives
0: i, I i'm i glad you brought the focus back onto listeners and the public and just people generally because i guess the question really is for everyone for all of us to ask. How are we systemically perhaps disadvantaged and how can we recognise those risk factors in our lives? Perhaps it's unfortunately that we don't have um, enough disposable income for a better lifestyle, for a healthier lifestyle, whether that's nutritionally, whether that's um, doing movement and exercise, whatever it is, how are we disproportionately burdened with disadvantages and how can we perhaps in our own personal capacity try to remove them um i think it's it, it does have to start from the grassroots. I, I know sunday S- S- smith he really did talk about structural um eco- uh, economies of power and determinants that you know as much as we can try to help ourselves we're being disproportionately disaffected by larger you know structures whether that's our policies and policy makers and our um g- governing powers or whether that's where we live and you know you can't do much you can't move away from you know, if you don't have enough money, you can't move away from a poor neighbourhood and a bad environment, right? But uh, I think the real value and the real change is in recognising the inequalities that are per- perhaps affecting you and how in your own way you can go about doing that because ultimately that means that you can change your life for the better. That's really what it is. It's a pathway towards opportunity. And speaking of pathways to opportunities and speaking of structural powers that can affect good change, I think that's really what we're moving on to next and it's talking about charitable governance and charitable, I think, uh, organisations that are doing their best to affect positive change in environments in the green, just uh, lead us on onto this.
1: Absolutely. (coughs) So, you know, in the next, uh, you know, hour or so, we're going to be looking at the role of NGOs, really, in combating health inequalities, because we talked about how you know there is a need to have more public health initiatives and there is a need to solve you know social issues and address social issues and address the structural determinants of health but who's going to be doing that is it going to be the ordinary person is it going to be a doctor is it going to be uh, you know a politician who is it and that's where we find the role of organisations such as the WHO uh UNHCR which is the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Activities um if i recall that correctly and a few of the organisations that we will mention um including humanity first and we have a guest speaker later on uh representing them from from themselves to talk about that more in detail but really it is these organisations it is the role of these organisations to kind of Um, you know addresses inequalities we mentioned earlier about you know COP 27 and the importance of having a global fund again this I can you know these kind of organizations highlight the issue that public health you know it's in the it's in the term itself but public health it's for the public by the public for the public and so these organizations are built not just to benefit one population or one country that they're to benefit the whole world and so you know we kind of need to work out, you know, what is the role of these NGOs, what is the role of the WHO and so forth in doing so, and do they actually make a difference? And so to summarise it really, they it's the, more, it's the development, implementation and the reform public health laws and the implementation and development of public health initiatives that is the key role of WHO and, you know, NGOs across the world in doing so. Um, and to in order to be effective, you know, they need to recognise that uh the health of public is of paramount importance and the need to be kind of look always looking at new and ever changing initiatives and ideas and how to, you know, address those issues and how to kind of, you know, come together to make a real change in the world. I was lucky enough. I've been lucky enough to be, you know, a part of Humanity First um, for the past few years, Mm. four or five years or so. And as part of my work for Humanity First, you know, overlooking project management, um, overlooking projects in uh, in the Middle East and uh, various countries and so on and so forth, and being fortunate enough to really kind of design projects and implement projects that have, I know, have had a uh, proper impact and seen the tangible effects of those projects. Mm. For example, distributing water purification tablets uh, in the Middle East. Um, What does that do? So so what? So basically, we have. I'm even having it on me. I'll show. I'll show you afterwards if I do in my wallet. One chlorine tablet can purify, I believe, five liters of water. And so sending kind of two boxes of those tablets is enough to purify about one hundred ten thousand liters of water, I believe, depending on how many there are in each box. Mm. And that is kind of like, I think, five six hundred people. That's like a water their water supply for a month. uh, Being purified. Incredible. All you do is you drop one of the tablets into five liters of water put it through a strainer or filter to remove the physical debris and the dirt, and you you now hopefully are stopping yourself from having cholera and so on and so forth, again public health, mm. you know, that is a public health issue, water and sanitary health, wash we call it. Um, addressing wash issues is, is a key part of an NGO's job. And so it's small projects like this, food baskets for example, uh, addressing nutritional issues, mm. you know, um, paying, I think it was about £30 or so I think it cost for about, if, if, if I'm not wrong, for a month's worth of supplies for a family of five. And so £30 for a month's worth of supplies for a family of five is, is, is absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, and the impact you can have you know, with your money is is, is profound. Um, and we were helping you know hundreds and and, you know almost I think thousands of families um, per month uh, in doing so and so really seeing those tangible effects is what you know really got me interested in the role of NGOs Mm -hmm. and you know I ended up going to you know diehard conferences and conference and the the ADEX conference in Belgium uh, last year and where really I saw how the NGOs are ever evolving they're not stuck in the the good thing was they're not stuck in 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 the, in the old days, you know, they're not stuck with with. There's new ideas all the time. For example, sanitary pads was a, was a big issue at the time, and how to kind of um you know ensure women's hygiene is is kept up to date. And so that's the um, that's the role of NGOs really is is being innovative and being sharp and addressing public health issues and you know making sure you know they come up with those ideas and then also being able to implement those ideas. One issue that you know is 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 not is fundamental to a kind of a lot of organizations a lot of world organizations is you know the bureaucracy and the red tape around a lot of these organizations and working at humanity first you know that's one thing that I kind of really almost admired was the quick turnaround was the the structures in place which ensured showed that you know whoever and almost the 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 direct leadership kind of style which was that if you had an idea that was good. You and you had the energy, and you wanted to take it forward. You had that capacity to do so, to present the proposal and take it forward. And it's that kind of dynamic leadership and that dynamic teamwork that is so crucial to address public health issues. When COVID hit, for example, you know, I was looking to be part of the, uh, re- the response team who were creating reports on almost a daily, weekly basis and keeping up to date with, you know, daily developments with COVID. And, you know, that whole workforce was turned around in a matter of a day of days and work began to combat COVID literally within a matter of days of, of it being declared a pandemic. And so it's that kind of. You know, that kind of dynamic structure, like I said, and that fast working kind of uh style of 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 humanitarian work that is so crucial and so needed. Just a little bit more about um kind of what exactly does the W.H.O. do um before we move on to our interview, just so you know, our our viewers have a little bit more information. So for universal health coverage, really, um, they kind of want to focus on primary health care, um, and really improving access to court, to to essential services. Um, that is kind of the, the primary sources, you know, making sure people have access to a primary healthcare care source. Um, and then on the more of like the structural determinants of health kind of side of it, they want to work towards, you know, sustainable financing and financial protection because, you know, income protection is so, so important, mm-hmm. you know, as as we've you we talked about so much earlier in improving health inequalities and kind of improving the health standards and health outcomes of a of population. Um, improving access to medication uh, and health products. Again, once again, another crucial part of it: training the health workforce and advising on labour policies, and uh, supporting people in uh, people's participation in national health policies. Again, it's where that health education aspect of it comes into it. Like we, like I said with the insight before, health kitchen is so important, not just on an individual uh, level, but also on a health workforce level. Um, you know, making sure your health work- workforce is trained and and it's well well established enough to kind of deal with any emergencies and deal with any. Um, uh, you know kind of incidents that occur and so on and so forth but I believe you have a caller on the line um, yeah so
0: we're, we're very um, glad to have uh, Galeem Edwards um, o- online from Humanity First um, thank you so much Gleem for giving your time today we're really talking about the role of um, you know the work that Humanity First has done and spotlight it, spotlight it as well and
1: um, just to introduce uh, Sab, I believe he's a trustee of Humanity First Humanity First UK I believe Um and, you know, we're so glad to, to have, you, have you here today, Clemson.
3: No, no, that's, thank you very much for having me on. It's my duty and uh, an obligation to, whenever not an, an invitation is put, to jump on board and, uh, and make sure that everyone knows uh, what we're up to and, and give a bit of an update, really. All
1: right, thank you very much, uh, regardless, as well. Um, so, just uh, Clemson, just to start off with, could you give our viewers, I'm sure many of them are already familiar, but just as an overview, um, can you give a, please give um, you know a brief background and history of humanity first?
3: Yeah, since 1995, uh, in the sort of Kosovo uh, war um, in the Balkans, uh, we saw a need there for a, a, a non-sectarian um, agency that could go into places and provide disaster relief cover, um, and that was the uh, sort of that was it was created by the the then fourth um, the head of the uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, the fourth Khalifa at the time, and he he um, he, he you know saw this saw this gap you see where you have um charities that you know whose side are they on you know who, uh, do they have an ulterior motive for us it was just a simple case of serving mankind and so many of our first decade was mainly disaster re- uh, relief and you know earthquakes and wars and, and various bits and pieces so we started off doing that and then have transformed into um um you know, a global presence um where we are you know, building hospitals and and doing water wells and stuff that isn't uh, day-to-day disasters. But, you know, to a, to a person in the middle of Africa with very little water, they're living every day as, as a disaster. So we, we're now uh, much bigger than the we once were, uh, but that our very humble foundations um, started back in that Balkans crisis.
0: Brilliant, Shazaka. Thank you so much, um, Saab, for, for, for mentioning that. We just wanted to also then ask about, um, you know, how it's just really NGOs, really, rather. And, uh, you know, who, what sort of NGOs are at the forefront of reducing disparities in healthcare systems around the world? Perhaps you've seen from your experience in going on these missions outside, um, you know, who, who, who are the actors? Of course, you know, Humanity First is there. How do you perhaps interact with um, some of the other um, organisations?
3: Yeah. Well, I think that um, one differentiator from us is that whereas Médecins Sans Frontières or Oxfam or um, all of these places, uh, you know, many of those people are having to pay people to go um, um, to, to do work. Um, so when you look at those big names, those big sort of high street charity names, your Oxfams and uh, uh, and that... And then also for medics like Médecins Sans Frontières and UNICEF, they are big charitable organisations, but they don't have the army of volunteers that we have. We're really, really, really blessed. Honestly, you know, we have so few paid uh, employees, a few first. but look what we do. You know, if you look at our website and look at our follow our Instagram feed, which I definitely would recommend, and our Twitter following, uh, assuming that Twitter stays up past the weekend. But um, you know, I, I would definitely look at um, some of the stuff that we generate. Um, and you can see that what we're generating with uh, with, with very little um, you know paid employees. So we work with UNICEF, we work with the UN, uh, uh, and we have that really special place in that we, because of our association with the MD Muslim Association, which is in all four con- all four corners of the world. You know, very few countries remain uh, untouched by the uh, the, uh, the community, and people. Everyone's got two hats, right? You've got your prayer hat for prayers and when there's a disaster or there's some requirement to help people, charity in Islam is one of those, that, that fifth pillar, bank. You put your Humanity First bib and your, your, your hat on and you're suddenly serving um, you know, to all people of all faiths and none um, where there's a requirement and so we are really really blessed like that and unfortunately you can't say that for many of the other big charities i mean oxfam was historically a christian charity but it's not like they can reach to a community in um indonesia for example where you know or or where we've seen tsunamis you know there may be a catholic you know uh, catholic the catholic uh, charity you know you know, we we are basically in, in in those areas where many people aren't, and we can rely on um, a free labour force to get work done.
1: And Zakla, for that, that's you know, very insight, insightful. And like you said, you know, one of the key strengths of Humanity First is, of course, having access to that volunteer base uh, task force uh, across the world, really, and being able to mobilise. And, you know, I know localization is a, a key, key theme of, of uh, NG work across the world, and it's at the forefront. It's kind of the, the key word that everyone's using nowadays is the importance of using local volunteers. And the best thing about Human First Really is that we have those local volunteers, um, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean,
3: the, cer- cer- certainly some of these big charities are now struggling because they don't have a presence. They don't have a local presence. So a country in, in a state of shock would say, ah, no thanks. You don't know. What you're you're going to come in here with an army of people and not really uh, understand and and not be suitable so definitely you're right there's been a sea change in the last 10 years where only charities that have a local presence and local people will really be allowed um, to to serve in the field and that's really our our great strength and that's why we're being chosen uh, more often than not by the big aid agencies to to be their conduit
1: Absolutely, and we've seen that you know in disasters in Indonesia and so on and so forth, where Humanity First has been, you know, there at the forefront simply because we have that task force really to mobilise. I remember being at the ADX conference with the director of Humanity First UK, and you know we realised that, like as you said, all these big charities and all these big NGOs, they simply cannot, you know, fulfil this, uh, you know, uh, you know that the criterion, fulfill that criterion for localization at such so with such a speed and such urgency that humanity first is able to do so with the, with the localization and the mobilization of his local task force also brings me you mentioned long-term project of humanity first as you said it started off as a disaster response um, organization and, and operated primarily so for the first few, few years of its existence but for the past few years we've seen kind of the programs aspect and the program department of humanity first you know expanding and having a lot more programs in in its uh, repertoire um you know perhaps you could enlighten our viewers and listeners Keep saying views for some reason. Our um, listeners on, you know, what kind of projects and what kind of programs does Humanity first uh, offer, and uh, you know, how do they make a, a long-term impact to the healthcare um, inequalities and in public health issues across the world?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. So if we look at um, things that people need in, in uh, we have an our motto, serving mankind. So where mankind is, uh, you know, is in deficiency. Now that might be food. Uh, That might be food banks in the UK. That might be um, people needing cassava grindery in Africa, Um, you know, food banks in Canada. You know, so there's a food element. There's also education where we're running a number of schools around the world. Um, So there's food and education that are paramount. People need water. Okay, so let's fulfill that requirement. A lot of these big NGOs have spent dollars, you know, thousands of dollars building, you know, um, a well probably over things, 10 years later the, the the fancy pumps run out or they don't have diesel, they need a better solution. We come along, we refurbish wells, we, we dig new wells, so we, you know, we have that function as well. And then there's uh, healthcare where people, you know, for a 25 um, quid you can, you know, fix someone's cataract, for example, and you know, these are very minor operations in the UK, but if there's no infrastructure in, in, in a country, Um, How are these people that, you know, you could be a friend of mine is just under 50 in the UK and he had a cataract. Okay, now he was in Africa. Uh, you know that man's got another 20 years um, working life, but if he's blind through cataracts, he's unable to feed his family, mm. and so it's a disaster. You know, so simple things like that—that that eye care. So we've got mobile eye units going around. We've also got—we're building a, another hos- uh, hospital in the Ivory Coast. You know, all of these grander schemes. Uh, there's a fundamental um, long-term plan in place.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned the hospital in Ivory Coast. I believe there's one in Guatemala um, as well being built or has been built now, I believe. Um, and, you know, continuing on with our theme of health inequalities, is there any way in which those hospitals that are run kind of differently to other conventional hospitals that kind of make them more sustainable and kind of enable them to address more social issues of health inequality um, kind of better than other conventional hospitals might do?
3: Yeah, I mean we do have a bit of a uh, schism, you know, within all of our uh, volunteers. Some, some wish to treat all patients for free, but obviously, you know, we are a charity. We are totally reliant on people's funds. So what we tend to do, and certainly the Guatemala operation, is trying to target the middle the, the middle uh, classes, as it were, to fund the operation so it becomes self funding. And then have a a whole segment of funding or a, a segment of um, um, care for people that have no funds. So that percentage, how do you tweak that percentage? So, It's important we have local staff and we pay them salaries, you know, in that regard. So Guatemala is that worst example where we have it. And the same with Ivory Coast. We pick a hospital that's going to be a really high-end hospital and provide a care that, you know, the local people don't have um, and people will want to pay for it. So there's there's quite an aspirational middle class in in Africa. Sometimes we in the U.K. have this image of everyone, you know, totally impoverished. It's absolute nonsense, you know. They they've got some very wealthy people, and they've got a strong middle class, and they're used to paying for education. And and then there's this whole band of people that are really struggling, and so that's where Ivory Coast Hospital will will do a mixture. And and, and the plan really is that it will be it will be a highly regarded local hospital, and it will also have a have a have a percentage of free care for people. And we see that in all of our hospitals. Um, and uh, and medical aid. A lot of our eye operations they're done for free uh, in places. But the hospitals slightly different. They're going to run in a slightly mm-hmm. different way. And I would urge all any medical people that, uh, that wish to volunteer. You know, we run uh, that regards people going out and uh, and helping out. So we do run volunteer bases. But you find Guatemala a lot of us there is staff and and some of our experts within the community go out and, uh, and do training and uh, and get it, uh, and share expertise and learn from the locals as well
0: mm. i i mean that just sounds uh, absolutely incredible the work i, I, I- you know, we've we've heard from you about the unique model, perhaps, of Humanity First in comparison to other NGOs. It's uh, incredible work in in, in mobilising. Uh, is there any challenges that you you or particularly Humanity First face? You know, you mentioned about the staff expenditure that you have to perhaps um, pay forward to, but are there any other wider challenges that you you're you know observing and trying to overcome?
3: Yeah, I mean, the thing is that um, if you look at um, the UK government in its in its, in its infinite wisdom, closed diffid. So there's a grant issuing body that's been scaled down. So the UK is going through tremendous financial pressures. And one thing, first thing they've done is they said, well, we're going we're to do a, a much reduced uh, charity for, for um, countries outside of the UK. Mm. So that's, you know, and if you look at that across the world, then all of those grant agencies uh, are, are offering less money. And, and the other thing as well is so a lot of these, um, like the Canadian government, US government, UK government, they obviously have an, an obligation to their taxpayers that money goes to to um, organisations where there's strong governance and and, and multiple paperwork tra- trails and and audit and and all of these sort of rigorous um, paperwork and unfortunately that re- sometimes requires that one of the questions they say is well how many paid staff do you have and so someone like uh, Oxfam or Save the Children or, or, or one of these other places they have a number, of, you know, they have quite a lot of, um, of paid staff so they, they look like a more professional organisation uh, and sometimes grant bodies look at UK as look at Humanity First and say uh, you, you can't be able you, you, it's impossible for you to do this work because you don't have paid employees uh, you know, so that's a, a really big challenge so, you know, we're, we're in that sort of you know no man's land really where you know it's a victim of our own success in that we run our model through volunteers uh but then when we go for grant funding we don't have enough we don't have enough paid salary so it's a bit of a dichotomy really but anyway that's one of our challenges to try and um, make sure that you know we use volunteer hours for example so instead of having a salary demand or a or something like we we actually show that the am, number of hours that people have put in you can that's a chargeable number uh, so you know we can we can look at things like that, but but that's one of the challenges. And we're we're very blessed. The a lot of the donations coming from um, our friends in the Andean Muslim Association and and others. Um, we are very very lucky in that regards. And um, we're always looking for external funding, um, and that's something that you know we have had success in the past. But we probably need to focus a little bit more on doing that. And so if there's any any sort of um, people who are very good with documentation and love to be super rigorous around governance and would like to. Put, uh, generate lots of documents please reach out and come to us because we're that's one area that um i would love to be uh, better at um, getting the money which we know is available mm. but tapping into that is a real challenge so you got any smart people out there that want to get involved and uh, you know i mean if you look at some charities they will pay people a bonus so yeah. say they might pay them 40 grand a year as a salary and they'll say, "Look, if you get a million, if you get two million dollars from the from the US government, or you get ten million euros from the euros, we'll pay you a slice of that money." So, you know, I think that you know, should humanity first do that? Should we be paying people to go and you know uh, and get grants? And and is that what we want to do? So I think that you know that's something that we we've talked about, and you know i would urge any listeners that uh, that have got um, um an interest in that or experience in that to to reach reach out to me uh chris.edwards at uh, uk.humanityfirst.org um or or come or contact voice of islam on the show and uh, and they can they can patch me in but that's one area we always need volunteers mm. whether they're medics whether they're logistical people even just people that want to work in the food bank on a saturday in uh, in in yorkshire mm. so we Whatever whatever your interest is, whatever your um, uh, time and um, uh, physical allowance is, we will definitely make good use of you.
0: I mean, all that's, I to say, uh, Kaleem, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for spotlighting the incredible work that Humanity First uh, is doing. Uh, like like you mentioned before, uh, any of our listeners who are listening in now, do check out the socials, definitely. Please please, uh, please go and search for Humanity First or reach out to us as well. Um, it's absolutely incredible work. Thank you so much, um, uh, uh, Kaleem, for coming on today. Um, this is Kaleem Edwards, a trustee for Humanity First. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, the green. That was an incredible conversation. I think linking it back to the wider topic that we're having, it's interesting to see how NGOs are coming in to, I guess, clean up the mess of wider uh, f- f- governance failures. But absolutely incredible work, you know, Humanity First is doing. Um, what's your sort of reflections and things? You, you know, like you said, you've personally even actually volunteered with Humanity First. It's interesting
1: to see, actually, you know, how the NGO world has been, is, is vastly changing, like I mentioned, it's so dynamic and, you know, especially the impact of COVID as well. Like I said, I've only been, you know, in the humanitarian world for the past four or five years and I started when I was 15 or so, so, you know, it's not been that long. But even now, as Kaleem uh mentioned, because of the impact of COVID, we're now seeing that DFID, which is the main kind of provider for grants in the UK especially, um for overseas charities that has reduced its sign- uh, funding significantly um and that leaves a lot of charities, for example, almost in the lurch um at a time where you know ironically we need charities the most we see, we're seeing their funding cut, and again the focus towards you know countries now looking after their own and prioritizing, prioritizing their own rather than you know the health uh rather than you know the needs of others which you know at times of need it's it's better for us to be coming together one would argue um rather than kind of so uh, isolating isolating ourselves. But, you know, it's interesting to see that because, like I said, we were talking about a global health fund for COP27, but now we see there's more of a kind of a localisation towards each individual country, looking after the interests of their own. But it's interesting, again, how Kalimsa mentioned that, you know, there are so many benefits of a charity that has its own volunteer task force, but the challenges that come with it are so unique to it as well. I, I remember once reading a statistic, and the figures might be a little bit off, but I believe around ninety pence or perhaps even more, ninety two pence for every pound that you donate to ninety first goes directly to the people in need. Whereas the the figure for, you know, Oxfam and um, you know, Islamic relief even is a lot lower. Um, you know, apologies for not having the correct figures. Um I believe it's in seventies and eighties, you know, instead it's quite a large fifteen, ten, fifteen percent decrease. And that just goes to show that really that you know, if you want your money to have the biggest impact, you should donate to charities that have more volunteer uh, task force and, you know, less of their money goes on you know, employing uh, people to work at a charity but the flip side of that and something that is not really, really discussed and so we're grateful to clean himself bringing it to the fore is the fact that by having you know a kind of a more professional you can call it almost a nature of their work as it's more paid you have access to greater funding and so you know you're able to have more of an impact with your work um with you know with those large charities and with those more professional organizations even though they are more inefficient so it's kind of the inefficient large charities that are doing most of the work. Whereas really it should be the more more efficient charities that should be giving more funding, ideally in a in a realistic world. Idealistic world. Um so that is an again, you know, an interesting conversation about funding and you know, like we said before about who is funding all these people, who is funding why should we be funding schools in Africa, why should we be f building water wells in Africa? Do we have that social responsibility? And if we do, then how do we go about doing that? Do we go about doing it to a charity that'll take fifty percent of the money and spend it on employees and spend the rest of it on building a water well, or do we give it to a charity that, you know, has will spend most of it on building a water well, but it might only build five water wells in a year mm. compared to a charity that does fifty wells in a month? Mm. And so these are all kind of issues that questions need to be asked and, you know, the humanitarian world itself, you know, perhaps needs to be regulated more. That is another question of, you know, humanitarian regulation. How necessary is it? Is it needed? These are the big conversations that are being held in the humanitarian space. Mm. Um, Something that our listeners might want to kind of do a bit more research on their own of and kind of see how it all kind of links back to public health. Um And finally, that one thing mentioned as well, um, you know, the impact of, of COVID on public health and how really, again, that's, impacting the funding which is then impacting the public health uh, issues that arise from the lack of funding and again it's a vicious cycle that we we see it's almost a downward uh, trend that we're seeing in recent years that's not improving it's going down Um, cost of living crisis financial crisis covid all these things are you know kind of multiplying the effects of the bad effects of each other
0: Mm. i I I think it's really important that the wider, I think, general perspective on charities is perhaps a negative one because of the issues that you've mentioned about, you know, taking up a cut on the income and also charity. I'm just looking at a graph right now that's quite critical of some charities saying that their incomes have more than doubled since 2000. This is pre-pandemic, actually. Um, But that just makes humanity first and the work that they do all the more important, all the more vital and unique. The fact that the way their governance and their uh, mobilization is set up, the fact that, you know, They really do put every effort into um, the the charitable works that they do. It's not about taking uh, money for their government and their own infrastructure and doubling their own operations. It's really simply grassroot level stuff. And affecting positive change into communities and making those relationships within communities, and it's all over across the world. It's not that stereotypical looking, particularly within Africa. Like um, our guest, called Akalim said that you know Africa, in some uh, um, some um, some aspects in the communities, is quite affluent, but they're expanding their work into Guatemala and uh, deprived nations within South Africa, South South, South America, even for example. So I, I I think I mean obviously we're a bit of a biased view, but. He, humanity first is really leading the way in in, in what charities should look like in uh, the 21st century and the the way they should really operate Absolutely and again I always kind of have in the back of my mind
1: to kind of bring abstract ideas and give them a practical mindset a practical application and so for the listeners that are viewing you know uh, the listeners that are listening in to the, the show today they might be thinking that this all sounds well and good but you know we we can't really do much about you know charities not getting their funding that they need this sounds more of an issue about them and not us. but really as Kaleem mentioned as I mentioned at the end how can we get involved in the charity and how can we as individuals uh, you know be a part of this change for better so if you have skills as a medic you know Humanity First Runs for example you know Initiatives to Gambia for example um, I'm not sure if you've been on them but you know I hope to go on one of them soon um and you know as a medic as a nurse as any kind of healthcare practitioner you can volunteer your time in that sense uh, and go abroad and and not just offer your services but also learn it's a great learning curve as well for for yourself as an individual um consultants go out there to teach but you can go out there to learn you know improve your repertoire of skills um and your knowledge of, of of healthcare across the world you can also if you're a graphic designer for example you can help in designing campaigns you know making you know uh in making the message more attractive and you know encouraging more donations and so on and so forth, it's so good at admin you can help with the admin side of it you can you know there's a lot of governance like I said there's a lot of bureaucracy in the in the humanitarian world, and so addressing that and looking at it from an analytical point of view is so so crucial and humanitarian is always in need of those you know kind of people who are uh have those skills and and you know work in that field and are able to do so and finally, you know just ordinary volunteers people you know who can give two three hours on a saturday there's a I believe the the food bank that they're referring to is is in Yorkshire near near my hometown of Radford actually um near there there's a food bank that is been running quite well actually and as we've spoken about in our previous shows the massive increase in the users of food banks I think they've especially been um active recently and so spending 2 3 hours of your time on a saturday um just minding the food bank helping make sure it's run that is the most simple thing you can do so I I especially encourage all viewers to kind of you know look at their skills um see how they best can impact and kind of uh, help humanity first in that sense and you know help help the world be a better place essentially as cliche as it sounds you know any kind of work that you put in for the betterment of mankind is, is good for yourself good for everyone else and if we uplift ourselves together as a community as a world um that can only lead to good and good and better things
0: I remember early on in the show when you were talking about how, you know, just 30 pounds a month can feed, um, was it a family of five for Mm. one month? Mm. Um, You know, how incredibly little that is. And sometimes you do feel, particularly in this environment, like you can't do much at all. You feel disempowered and dispossessed by your actions and your abilities. But we all have, I guess, enough um um enough to make real change if not in in the environment around us because 30 pounds perhaps can get you a pint of milk and a block of cheese nowadays Mm. but like you said in 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 other settings it's actually life altering um and i think that was sort of a revelation for me to actually um understand and incorporate into my practice that you know as much as you can you can always always make a difference um I, I know that the head of the Ahmadiyya muslim community um his Holiness, um he 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 advises um you know Ahmadiyya muslims that every day he 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 gives an aspect of charity it does, it's not really about um you know how much you give rather the consistency and the act of you know caring for one another i i think Also, just before I move on to, I guess, the idea of um, Islam and how it incorporates and inculcates attributes and attitudes towards being charitable and ultimately establishing all forms of equality. Remember, we came from public health inequality to how NGOs can really help balance that in favour of bettering the environment and society overall. Uh, You know, Humanity First had a really successful telethon as well recently, didn't Mm,
1: they? Absolutely. Yes, and the telethon, I was lucky enough to be i believe it was actually a couple of hours after our last show last week happened and happened to be in, in there and it seemed quite fun um you might have caught me in the background of one of the live uh, uh telethons as well actually but you know as much of a fun day out as it was for, for the for the children that were there and you know the kind of um kind of the people that were viewing it, it was quite fun you know we had kind of nice games and mini golf and so on and so forth again apologies for not knowing the exact figures but i believe thousands of pounds were raised um if you want to have a quick check on the figures for that for that live telethon and it's kind of events like this you know which kind of keep Humanity First going and so individual donations are so so crucial um, for an organisation like Humanity First like I said who might not have might not have access to the big books that the big charities can get access to but it's the people that you know are running the charity it's the people that are funding the charity the people that that are supporting the charity actually I just wanted to mention something that I kind of missed out on earlier is that you know in terms of the impact of humanity first it's in you know what actually does what actually impact has it had recently just a few figures for you there's been 4161 water installations serving Mm. over 4.5 million people Mm. that's not a small number you know That's quite a lot um in any sense of term uh, in any sense of, of that word you know four and a half million people is is You know, it's the—I mean—it's the population of certain countries across the world. Yeah. So we might have, you know, First is is not a big player, but really, it's definitely not a small charity. It's definitely not even a medium charity by any by any standard. Mm. And the fact that it's been able to do this work on the back of its volunteer task force is is an amazing achievement and an absolute blessing, really. Thirty-nine thousand cataract operations, as Kalimsa was mentioning earlier, giving people back their sight. Sixty-nine thousand schools—sorry, sixty-nine schools built and under construction worldwide education again is is a really important factor nutrition wash education food security all these things are crucial crucial parts of of the work that the who does and as and you sure that's where they do and Humanity First is a reflection of that building on their ideas and either, and their principles some of the some of the 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 long term programs and projects they do water for life installing water wells and pumps as we mentioned feed a village so farming support and you know tools to milling machines uh, saving hours a, a day for you know villages in africa um you know supporting their food security you know, improving their food security and improving the access to good food good nutrition often care as well you know something that is sometimes overlooked in places like um you know don't stereotype but africa for example or or south america where that support system where that you know you can say that social benefit system that social support network is not in place by the government if there's an orphan for example who looks after the orphan the state may not be doing enough the state might not have that structure in place to support them and you know often it's these poor orphans that can kind of slip through the cracks almost and you know it's really like we mentioned earlier. Public health is about having the impact or having the greatest impact where possible, mm. and turning someone's life. Who someone is born orphaned with no kind of parental structure, no kind of family to support them, who are destined for a life on the streets and of of nothing really. Humanity is giving them shelter, giving them support, giving them food, clothing, education in those orphanages. This is what is so so amazing about humanitarians that they really they really are targeting those that are at their worst end of the spectrum. Mm. Like we talked about, having the greatest impact. It is Humanity First out here that is doing the work, Mm. Um, making sure, acting as that safety net for those that fall through the system. Food banks, as mentioned earlier, even in the UK, there's food banks, um, helping the homeless as well. Again, working at the lower end of society, making sure that they have access to so to the most basic of needs as kleinsar mentioned i really like the sustainable idea of the hospitals mm. as he explained quite well is that what they do is they have high tech hospitals and high tech technology so that the middle class and the, the upper middle class are willing to pay for their for their healthcare because they can afford it and because it's the acceptable thing in those countries to pay for your healthcare there's no nhs for example in certain countries mm. But that what that means is by them praying, paying, and perhaps paying a little bit of a premium, they are then not just paying for their operation and paying for the hospital. They're paying for, they're paying it forward almost. They're paying for those that are less fortunate to have those operations, have those same services given to free. And so that is you know a great example of how you know uh, social moves and social changes uh, are are happening in these countries. And why can't we do the same thing here? Why can't we have that same selflessness and justice for our fellow man in in, in our countries here? why are they complaining about higher taxes and so on and so forth a whole issue of course but why are we not glad that we are able to help someone less fortunate than us, for example mm. again these are really important conversations to have um but again going back to the idea of, of ngos working in public health we are just some of the examples of you know the way in, in which humanity first this ngo is helping to improve is helping to address public health issues and public health inequalities across the world
0: like you said, to contextualize it, as much as it it's uplifting, I think we have to use a more severe word. These are life altering um, missions that mm. Humanity First is really doing. Two hundred forty three thousand um, pounds for the telethon wow. um, last wow. week, but I'm sure that 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 that's um you know upshot from that because that was uh, that that's a week old now and two weeks old actually rather. Um, and that telethon it was just for the weekend, so it was well. I mean, th- th- you could donate for um bef- before but really the tele the activity that Humanity First does and the gain that it yields is absolutely incredible. It's an incredibly productive um, functioning um, and and governing body. Mm. Um, And like you said, it's absolutely incredible. I think... You, know, you you might say, well, of course, humanity first not, is not necessarily rooted um, as a or is not a forwardly facing Muslim charity, like you said. You know, as much as it was founded by the fourth caliph for the early Muslim community, um, it's it's about affecting positive change in every environment for all people in every um, setting that they can. Uh, you know, like you said, whether it's homeless, um, um, providing food banks or providing shelter or providing better healthcare, and I think really let's go into rather the islamic notions of bettering public health and bettering just the health of others as well why should you care for and how can you care for your fellow brothers and your fellow society dwellers rather in this environment where you yourself can't really perhaps care for your own self right i i saw this incredibly heartbreaking and i thought it was actually disgusting really that the bbc aired it but it was this um a single father He was living with his two boys, quite young, I'd say they're less than 10 years old, and every day, there was like a day in in his life in in this circumstance, he would wake up, he would prepare breakfast, he won't eat, he would prepare his breakfast for his two young sons, and if there were scraps, he would then eat those scraps to take a shower he'd have to boil the kettle and then he'd have to go into the bath now some some, some listeners will be like oh i remember doing that in pakistan or whatever it's, it's about the standard of living and the indignity that you're now facing because of the conditions that you have and he, he broke down he said i can't do this anymore and i think i think that's really what it is there's this, a horrific horrible notion that sometimes people need to just go out there and work this is like you know like, like you said it's about not blaming the individual everyone knows these are hard times everyone knows that there's an increase in um, food poverty and fuel poverty and energy poverty as well people are living in colder homes it's affecting their health that two-year-old kid died because of mold on his home in, in his home you know the father knew about it he called the council the social care in this country and the social um, welfare estate really it, it's had so many underfunding and cuts to its services that it's almost, I guess, non-existent to the point where it doesn't function appropriately. And so how can you, as someone who's also perhaps suffering these indignities, go out and think about other people? I think it's really hard to do that. But really, I think Islam does this brilliantly in the sense that it recognizes all wealth isn't attributed to anyone. All wealth is essentially possession of God. It's given by God. God is al-Razak, right? He, he's the one who provides for all. He's al-Wahab. Who, 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 he's the best of providers. And so, how can you possess something and consider that your wealth is if your possession when you also believe in the presence of God, who is those attributes and has that characteristic? So, wealth isn't essentially of yours. And therefore, that's the underlying principle of zakat as well and charitable acts that, it's not just you're giving out of the goodness of your heart. It's owed to those people as well. They have a right to some portion of your wealth because of the wider injustices. They don't have access to it. And so you're stepping forward to undo that injustice by providing them what is owed to them. It's not you know this charity charitable act mm-hmm. out of the goodness of your heart. Mm-hmm. It's what's necessary and what's just and what's mm-hmm. right.
1: Whenever the aspect of justice is mentioned, I, it always brings me back to His Holiness the Fifth Caliph of the Muslim Community, when he had you know a series of lectures recently across the world, where he spoke about justice in an unjust world, and how he spoke about you know the key themes of personal justice and justice starting from the home and justice based on the Islamic themes. Islam is a beautiful religion in the sense that it always goes back. There's there's rules and there's kind of guidelines that are there to structure your life and make it easier for you to understand the principles on which you're based on. But it's those principles and those key themes that are so crucial. The themes of, you know, the rights of Allah, Al the Almighty, the rights of God, but more importantly the right and almost as importantly, the rights of the people. So the rights of the wealthy the the rights of the poor is that the poor a part a portion of the wealth of the wealthy is a right of the poor. That's why there's the system of zakat, for example, that you give, that you are owed. the The poor are owed a portion of the wealth of the wealthy, like I said. And so you're doing them a favor by you're not even you're not doing them a favor by giving them some money. They're actually doing you a favor by accepting the money from you and giving you the blessings in return because they're gonna get that regardless. They're they're owed that, but by taking that they're doing you a favor actually. And it's such a beautiful way that Islam has structured this and given conveys this message, that. It places no burden on the poor. In fact, it places the burden on the wealthy to make sure that they give it to the poor. And it does not make the, you know, the, the less well off in society, the less privileged feel as if they're, uh, they're being a burden, for example. That's, that's what I mean to say. It doesn't make them feel like they're any less valued. In fact, it, it gives them a sense of value in the sense that it, you know, enables them access to resources which they might have felt ashamed of or, or kind of too embarrassed to ask for. And if we have, if we try and apply those themes and those values and those principles in the Western world, you know, it might be, actually not might be, it, it definitely will be that we will see that injustice decreasing because people will see their fellow man, you will see your fellow uh, per, person on the street as, you know, as part of you. Again, go back to, you know, my family upbringing is a very important part of my life. Whenever you used to see, you know, people, uh, when we go back back to Pakistan, I remember my, my one day my father went out and he had a stack of notes and so, so forth. Mm. And, you know, I think one of my cousins went with him and he was saying, and my father started giving kind of, uh, you know, Notes to whoever was on the street, whoever was in front of, them. and then my cousin in fact I was saying, no, 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 they don't. They will just they're here hustling you. They're just going to take this money and give it to someone else and mm-hmm. so forth. Because that money is going to go do some good surely. It, at some point, at some along the chain, it's going to help someone, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to help the beggar. It's going to help their their father, their mother, whatnot. And so what is what are these notes to me? You know, these notes to me won't make a difference today or tomorrow. But they may they may make a difference. They may make a change in someone's lives. And that potential, that small, even though it's a small chance, that small potential that you'll change someone's lives for better, that's worth taking the risk. Mm. Because what is a few pounds here and there if, you know, for us? Mm. you know, And that's not coming from a sense of privilege. That's not coming from a lofty status. That's coming from a a kind of a sense of the economic imbalance of the world where £30 here will give you half a week's shopping, but £30 in, in the Middle East will give you a month's worth of food for Family Five. Having a sense of that economic disparity means that we are able to have that spending power, we're able to have that purchasing power where we can afford to, you know, kind of sacrifice a few pounds for us. And those few pounds will mean, you know, the world to certain people in, in less well off countries. But it's about having that mindset and thinking that. And instead of saying that no, we know what is better and you know, thinking that, you know, we should not help the poor, or there's certain issues that might, you know, stop us from giving to the to the poor on the streets, for example. We should be viewing it in the sense that they owe as in we owe them this. It is a favor that they're doing upon us by mm. accepting this from us and giving us this opportunity to have those blessings. Mm. And again, justice in an injustice world, what a perfect way of conveying how we should act and how we can kind of try and change the world for better. And I think justice is is the perfect perfect word um, for conveying that.
0: I, I think I think it's really really beautiful. And the other aspect that I always think about is um, as humans in the Quran, we're described as people as adab, right? That we 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 have the quality of reflecting things, and it's our duty to be reflecting the attributes, the eternal attributes of God. And one of the attributes of God, one of the beautiful attributes of God. Is al-Adil, the utter just, the most just, and so it's our in our position and in our you know sort of um, power, whatever that that may be, we always have to look for ways of spreading justice. And like you said, you know, ch- charitable acts like Zagat isn't a form of goodness on our part. It's about for, reforming and re- retributing proper justice onto people that are owed that that right. Um, so it's absolutely incredible sorry i'm losing my voice again but at the cream if you could just go over um that what we talked about in the first hour particularly with public health inequalities and i'll go over what we talked about in the second hour which was ngos and how we can establish their roles better in forming trustful, equitable society
1: absolutely um just to summarize the show for the viewers that you know uh, the listeners that have just joined um for the for the first hour or so between 10 and 11 we were talking about public health and instruction to public health and the rise of uh, health inequalities in the world especially after the COVID pandemic and you were talking about first of all what are health inequalities what is public health how do we identify public health needs how do we identify public health uh, you know healthy inequalities and what can we do you know as society first as and as individuals how can we address those needs how can we address those inequalities and how can we make a difference in the world and public health you know as we say, public health is so crucial. Uh, it's so crucial to understand what it really means. You know, like I said before, it can come across as such an abstract idea, but the principles and the morals behind it, if we understand them and apply them to our everyday lives, we can have, you know, we can address those inequalities in our own life. And by becoming social movers and social changes, what we can do is we can then improve the inequality on a wider scale. You know, we can address the structural determinants of health that we talked about. We had Sunday Smile Sab. you know for for our interview and he spoke very eloquently about what as an academic public health academic what his work means to him and what his work means for the wider community and so you know uh, introducing um, changing mindsets about the medical practitioners for example in order to you know uh, in order to kind of improve the way in which we view health and health creation and health promotion we talked about as well it's these kind of again it's these it's these kind of principles and abstract ideas which are then translated into practical ideas that make a difference in the world. Again, I keep emphasizing this point, but it's a point that sometimes people fail to understand, that you've got to look at things from an abstract point of view first to understand the concept, and then you've got to impl- apply it, really. Ideas are there to be applied, you know. We can't just sit and think about ideas all day long. Neither can we try and apply something without thinking about the moral and the rationing and the you know the rationale behind it. And so this is why education in public health is so important. And then we can go, you know, go forth and uh, look at all the public health projects. Um, We then moved on to looking at NGOs, as as you might want to mention.
0: Yeah, it's really about how Humanity First in particular spotlighting their incredible work and their unique model of governance is leading the way in establishing Better living conditions, um, you know, for, for for those that are unfortunately in in worse conditions than us. My voice is back, but uh, it's 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 an absolutely incredible discussion talking about the incredible work that Humanity First is doing and how they're affecting real positive change with the money that they generate through charitable donations. And I think overall, the theme and the message is for our for our listeners and for our own selves. Firstly, that health exists beyond the membrane of our biology, right? I, I remember when I first heard about the term health creation, it was only, like, two years ago, and I actually had, like, a very visceral, visceral bodily reaction to it. I was, like, incredibly excited about it. I, I remember I had, like... um. Uh, goosebumps over it because I I, it, I always impl- implicitly thought that health was conditioned. You know, it wasn't something that I could create. But really, the main message of today's show is health can be created in your personal capacity, and you also have the capacity through charitable acts to create better health for those mm. that have the worst health uh, outcomes as well. Absolutely. You know, it's just widespread inequality that we're experiencing right now but it's really about how you can better your own conditions and the importance and the value that you have in other people's lives in creating their better health um, as well absolutely you know what,
1: what a nice concise summary of the show again the key, key takeaway is please all our listeners, uh, go out and educate yourself you know, find out more public health. You can actually do something called a master's of public health, which is actually online, available online now as an online course, I, I believe. So if you really, really are interested in this. You know, that might be something worth looking at. But even beyond that, you know, volunteering for your Humanity First, um, getting involved in you know public health activities, getting involved in projects in your local community. Then you know, there's a local community centre in a lot of communities. Just, just you know have putting up some posters on a wall, you know, telling people to get their flu jabs. That's an example of a public health initiative that you can do for example, or you can make a change. And that's something that could have an effect. Why? So we might go and get the flu jab, they might not get the flu, so on so forth. It's very simple. Mm. But you know, posters putting up in your community centre, in your local mosque for example, reminding people to get their jabs is just mm. one simple way in which, you know, you can make an impact in 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 society and in
0: your life. Well, there you have it. That was our show today. Thank you so much for joining in and listening to Saturday Morning Live uh, on Voice of Islam Radio. Thank you to all the researchers. Thank you, Green for coming on as well and joining me on the show. And thank you to all the engineers. And thank you again for listening to the show. And until next week, um Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh.